0: Hello oh, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode one, two, three, recorded on September fifteenth, twenty nineteen. I'm Chris, and I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. I didn't, I didn't upset you with that uh, introduction, did I? A little bit. It should be one hundred and twenty-three. <laughs> I know, I know. I just, I had to do it. Well, we start out with some great news for users of the GNOME desktop version three point three four is released, and this is all about performance. It seems. Yeah, thanks to some last minute mutter patches that made it in just under the wire, as they say, if, as if there is such a thing in open source development. Uh, and it, it introduces some nice performance improvements in just sort of basic animation things, and some areas that uh, turns out were just a, a minor correction. In one case, Joe, uh, they, they were using GPU acceleration for a certain task, and it turned out that the CPU overhead to execute on the GPU was pretty considerable. And so by just taking it back to the CPU, they saved a ton of time and increased performance. Small tweaks now, some of which are coming right out of Canonical now that they're using the GNOME desktop as their default desktop.
1: Yeah, I was talking to Will about that on Late Night Linux, and he said that it's amazing. It's night and day between 1804 and 1910.
0: I haven't made the upgrade myself, but I've been using some patches from upstream on my current GNOME installation, and I've noticed an improvement. So it is it is really good. And when you have this now as the primary, quote unquote, enterprise desktop, seeing these kinds of performance improvements benefits more than just one distribution. This is something that benefits a lot of users now. It doesn't address some of the core concerns I have about GNOME's fundamentals, but it's great for what we have right now. And and on top of these performance improvements, there's simple, nice quality of life improvements that are also landing. GNOME 3.3.4 introduced a custom folders area in the applications overview. So sort of like on a smartphone, how you can drop things inside a folder. You can now do that in the application overview. And SysProf is making performance profiling of applications on the GNOME desktop even easier. And there's also multiple improvements to Builder which include an integrated D-bus inspector. All in all, though, this is telling a story that this is becoming an even more mature platform for developers and a more mature platform for power users.
1: Well, I actually did try this out. I installed Ubuntu 19.10, the daily image, a couple of weeks ago, and I've been keeping that up to date. And I thought, well, why not just install the Ubuntu session on top of that? And then logged into it, and I don't know, it's just I just can't get on with it but I did notice on my little Vivo book that really isn't very powerful that it was very smooth with the animations and everything and it did feel faster than the last time I checked it out but it's still just too fancy too many animations just not like a proper desktop enough for me i'm afraid
0: (laughs) oh yeah all that polish is just it's so frustrating (laughs) well yeah the promotional video
1: talks about how it's animation centric and everything it's just it's just not for me but this is our flagship desktop it's default on ubuntu and fedora so it's important to get those things like the animations working really smoothly because most people actually like that stuff
0: I take your point with the animations because you convinced me to really tone it way down on my Android device, and I feel like that's made it perceptibly faster to me. And I've wondered why I haven't been compelled to turn off the animations on my iPhone when I find it to be a net enhancement on Android, but I don't find it to be a net enhancement on iOS. In fact, they're, they're, even for my taste, they're a little too, they're too long. The animations coming in and out of folders and closing applications and the application switcher. It could be a little bit faster. And I've wondered why I've turned them off for a little bit and then I've turned them back on. And what I realized, it's sort of the same with GNOME versus Plasma for me. In GNOME Shell, the animations provide context. The, the applications overview and the way the windows open and close provide a, a sort of a hint of functionality, what's happening. They give me a, a context of awareness on my desktop. On Plasma, I can turn it way too far, where things are just animated like crazy, and there's no real rhyme or reason. It's not it's not a particular flow. It's kind of the same thing on iOS. When when you close or open an application, they zoom in and out of the icon. They give you spatial awareness of where that's at, and there's a utility to it. And so when the animations provide functionality, utility, or, or even if they're just subconsciously giving me cues on, on how to navigate my UI, I find them useful. And when they're more candy. They're just extras that are just all over the place, no real rhyme or reason. Over time, I just tend to turn them all off. I might try them for a bit, but then I turn them all off. And Gnome Shells really struck that balance for me. The animations are um, minor. You know, they're in the right place. They're smooth now. They don't seem like they detract from the experience. They they provide some level of context to the experience So I really like it. I'm still using XFCE on my workstation here in the studio, still using Plasma in the actual recording area. But on my laptop, I've switched over to Gnome Shell on Wayland because of the smoothness and richness of the whole UI, in part because I find these animations actually add to the experience.
1: Well, I get it, and I get why people are into it, but I'm just not, I'm
0: afraid. That's why there's more desktops than you can shake a stick at, Joe. (laughs)
1: Indeed. And if you're on a desktop that isn't GNOME and you want to update the firmware on your device and you want to use a GUI for it, well, there's now a release of GNOME firmware, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, I think.
0: We did indeed. And to keep things fun, it's just arbitrarily being called 3.340 to celebrate the new release of GNOME as well. Um, I think that's that's great. It's just really kind of an indication this thing is ready to be used by end users. It's not going to be installed by default, at least right now, but it is available right now on Flathub. I loaded it up, and uh, one of the, I guess I, I've seen it in the screenshots, but one thing I didn't expect when I put it in my actual system, it read all my hard drives and got all of their vendor information, their BIOS or firmware, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, what kind of um, steps I have to take to do the updates to that particular device. I, I guess I was I was expecting more like my traditional BIOS and just sort of completely forgot that my SSDs all have firmwares on them as well that need updated. So it it's a pretty nice project just in that sense. You see a list of everything that's supported, you get firmware information, you get serial information, vendor information. It's a really handy app.
1: Yeah, I tried it out and it's very simple. It's not much to it. Unfortunately, the machine I tried it out on didn't have any devices that had any updates available for them, so I wasn't able to fully try it out. But I do like the simplicity.
0: Did you flat pack it?
1: Yeah, I got it flat Flathub, yeah. It
0: wasn't too bad, was it? Like, there's just a couple of commands to get it going. Well, yeah, but on
1: XFCE, it did have to download about 300 megabytes of stuff. I don't even know what it was getting, but uh, it worked.
0: <laughs> yeah, I suppose you might have been missing some of the theme stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, I noticed this week that uh, LVFS announced that Acer has joined the group, although it's it's only one rig right now.
1: Yeah, but you have to start somewhere, and hopefully this is going to mean that there's a bunch more machines coming soon.
0: Well, Joe, it's not quite dead yet. Firefox is reintroducing the test pilot program that was shut down earlier. Yeah, they shut it down back in January
1: of this year, but they've resurrected it seemingly as a way to try out their new VPN
0: service. Brilliant. I think that's brilliant because that's something people are interested in. So why not relaunch this program with a hot commodity? This has been a long, strange, twisted tale. It originally started as an add-on, I think, more than three years ago, and then eventually was baked into Firefox, and then, like Joe said, killed back in January. On January 15th, they announced they were ending the program, and now they're relaunching it. (laughs) They even write on their site, like a cat, the test pilot program has many lives, and Starting out with uh, VPN, the Firefox Private Network, which is an extension that will provide a secure, encrypted path to the web to protect your connection and your personal information anywhere and everywhere that you use the Firefox browser, end quote. Well, I'd be keen to give this a go for sure, but unfortunately, right now
1: at least, it's only available to Firefox users in the US.
0: Oh, don't worry, Joe. They want your money too. Uh, This is just the very beginning. We don't have any information on what the eventual pricing will be or... What other things that they'll bundle in this whole little thing? So I'm sure eventually they'll get to you because they need everyone's money, Joe. They all do. And I think uh, rumor has it Mr. West Payne is giving this a go right now. So we may hear from him how it's gone. I think this is pretty smart. Build this right in. This is something that Mozilla can do much more flexibly than uh, Google can do. It's something that Apple has zero interest in, so they're the major browser provider that's best positioned to try something like this. I also, time will tell, but right now, I trust the Mozilla brand, so if I was trying to pick between VPN providers and I just wanted something to make sure that when I'm checking my bank account at the coffee shop is secure, I would trust something built into Firefox, something with Mozilla's name on it. So I think it's pretty smart for them to try it, and don't worry, they'll get to everybody soon. This is using
1: Cloudflare, though, and I've seen a bit of a negative reaction to that.
0: I don't think anybody likes centralization. Uh, It's notable, too, this week that Cloudflare had their IPO. They rose 20% in the first day of trading on the public market. And I think on their first day, it ended at $18 a share. So Cloudflare has a lot going on right now, including being closely connected with another feature that Mozilla is rolling out to Firefox users in the U.S., This month, DNS over HTTPS will begin turning on for some.
1: And once again, Mozilla have come in for a bit of criticism for partnering with Cloudflare because although with the DNS over HTTPS thing, you can change the provider, the default is going to be Cloudflare.
0: When I dug around on this, Mozilla's response appears to be, Cloudflare is the only provider that would agree to our privacy terms. That's a hard answer to argue with. I guess we we have only Mozilla to trust in this. Much like the VPN functionality, we're really putting our faith in Mozilla to do their due diligence with Cloudflare. For those of you that aren't familiar, and I just I'll probably do this for a little bit longer. DOE or DNS over HTTPS allows DNS requests to look like normal HTTPS traffic to special Doe-compatible DNS servers that are called Doe resolvers. Basically, it hides DNS requests inside a normal deluge of HTTPS traffic over a network. Uh, and that has the advantage of bypassing censorship, monitoring, keeping the request secure, but it also forfeits some of the advantages of DNS, like network-wide resolving and decentralization of the protocol. One thing I like to remind people in this whole DNS over HTTPS conversation, you have implementation and you have technology. The implementation can be done wrong and you can have centralization and you can have monitoring and you can have all kinds of awful things happen. That doesn't mean the technology is necessarily flawed. There, There's two separate issues here.
1: Yeah, and Mozilla is actively working on the implementation of this. They're making sure that it doesn't break parental controls, for example, And they're taking on board some of the criticism.
0: Yeah, we'll see where this goes. The the old sysadmin in me is a little bothered by just ignoring the uh, system DNS settings because often those are set specifically on an enterprise network in a very particular way. Um, However, like you said, Mozilla is testing this. Uh, And I'm not the only one that's concerned. Others are concerned as well. So we'll see this work itself out in the quote-unquote marketplace. But like an example, uh, OpenBSD is going to ship their redistribution of Firefox with Doe turned off because their view as a project is that all applications should respect the system DNS settings.
1: Well, yeah, and just because it's default doesn't mean that you as the administrator can't turn it off. And if you're controlling the machines in a whole enterprise and you are controlling the DNS, then there's no reason why you can't just turn it off.
0: I also kind of feel, though, like the genie's out of the bottle on this one. Apps on phones are going to start implementing this, and even Google is working on it with Chrome. In version 78, for a small group of users running Chrome 78, Google will run an experiment that checks if their DNS provider is part of a small list of known Doe-compatible providers. If your DNS provider is on that list... Chrome will automatically upgrade to Doe, just in the background. So if you're using Google DNS or Cloudflare or OpenDNS, which are a couple of popular ones, it may detect this and just start trying it and see how it works. Yeah, it does feel like this is
1: going to end up being default in all the browsers before too long.
0: I also think messaging applications will be quick to adopt this. Just picture something like Telegram. If they have censorship issues at the state level, using something like Doe might help bypass that censorship. It, it could give people a voice in some cases. Like there's there's a lot of like, you know, pro-humanity arguments that can be made as well as, oh my God, think of the children arguments that can be made saying, well, you'll bypass parental filters, you'll you'll bypass social media filtering. So it's this is going to be a fascinating one. Well, in the short
1: term, you wouldn't think that the next release of CentOS was going to be hotly anticipated.
0: But even apparently the CentOS community gets pretty excited about the next big release. And unfortunately, they're going to have to wait a little bit. So Red Hat Enterprise Linux 8 came out on May 7th, 2019. The moment that happens, everyone asked the question, When CentOS 8 shipping? And as happened, CentOS users started complaining on the development mailing list which kind of, kind of kind of felt like old times. The, back in the good old days when CentOS would like way behind a RHEL release and there's all kinds of responses in the thread, the, the traditional like people that get very upset and then people that are very thankful for all the hard work. There's some name calling in there, lots of back and forth, but you eventually get to the nugget that the team just has limited time, limited resources.
1: Which is a shame given that Red Hat bought them. You think they would have given them a few more people to work on it.
0: Is it a shame or is it a sign that they've they've taken sort of a, a hands-off approach and they let the project continue on its organic original path? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's a good sign. But on the CentOS
1: page on Wikipedia, there's a very handy table that shows you the CentOS releases next to the Rail releases and the delay in the number of days. And looking at them, it's usually around about a month, maybe a little bit more than that, five or six weeks. But you get to 7.7 of Rel, which came out on the 6th of August, and that hasn't come out yet, and that is kind of due any day now, and that is what's holding up CentOS 8 here. They need to get 7.7 out first.
0: But that seems to be a totally fair and understandable priority, because you have many more users that have CentOS 7.x in production. No one has 8 in production, so take care of the users that are running the production OS right now. And who uses something like CentOS and uh, expects to have the latest and greatest the moment it comes out? Like, that just seems completely opposite of what the expectations of the distro should be. It's supposed to be a slow-moving enterprise-grade distro. What well, exactly. Well, this isn't very enterprise, Joe, but in terms of anticipated releases, The Pine64 folks blew my mind this week when they tweeted a picture of the Pine Time, a Linux-compatible smartphone companion. They say it's a side project of theirs.
1: Yeah, I wasn't expecting this to be announced quite so soon. I did know about it through my uh, connection to Pine64, but I wasn't expecting it to be so cheap as well. And the reason that it's cheap is that it is very low-spec. We're not talking about an Android Wear-type device here that's going to run Linux. We're talking about something that's much more like the original Pebble on instead of the E-Ink screen, it's gonna have a, a touchscreen LCD, but it's gonna be running something like RTOS, something much, much lighter than Linux. And so the feature set is gonna be very much limited.
0: Yeah, limited might be okay depending on what that limited feature set is. Well, I'm really surprised by this. We know just a little bit right now. Um, It seems that the watch will be made of a zinc alloy and plastic. It'll come with a charging dock, a wristband, and a heart rate monitor. And it said it could possibly last several days on a charge. Development kits should be available in one to two months. Pine Time seems to be really similar to an existing fitness tracker that's sold on AliExpress. But... It appears this might be slightly nicer. For example, this has a full touch screen, whereas the AliExpress has just a one touch button, as well as this may have firmware that is fully freeable. We don't really know quite yet. Um, but if it, if it got some of the basic health tracking stuff right and reported them back to my OS in a way that was usable, that'd really be the big tick. If you can tell time and do the health tracking stuff, I'm pretty much in. I'd love to have a, like a free, cheaper alternative to Fitbit that isn't tied to a cloud service of any kind. This would be an easy 25 bucks for me. Well, I think we all need to
1: not get carried away here because how Pine64 does things is they make the hardware and then they rely on the community to make the software. That's always been the case for all of their single board computers and the, the Pine books and the Pine phone that's coming out. And so, This tweet was really just trying to generate a bit of buzz and see if anyone was interested in collaborating with them to make this software, because this is a very niche thing that we're talking about here. We're not even talking about mobile Linux. We're talking about, as I said, something like RTOS, and there aren't that many devs of that. And so this could not happen at all, potentially, if no one's interested in making the software for it. And even if they are, then you still need the companion apps to be written for the various platforms. And the idea of this is it's going to be a companion to things like Ubuntu Touch or Postmarket OS with um, Plasma Mobile on it. It's not designed to be working with iOS and Android. I mean, there's no reason why anyone couldn't make those apps for iOS and Android. I think it'd be easier with Android to publish that app because you could do it in something like F-Droid, for example. But I think that we need to not get too excited about this. It's not a finished product by any stretch of the imagination.
0: Yeah, you're right. Um, Fair points all around. I think on the iOS and Android side, it would really be a matter of either figuring out how to A, integrate with HealthKit, or B, just adding support to an existing health tracking app for this device. So it may be more feasible than it seems initially for that aspect of it. The reason why I think it's kind of clever, and it, it both makes me think that they're trying to bite off more than they can chew which we'll see that's yet to be determined but it also makes me think this is the area where we should be pushing smartphones are done when I look at the Pine 64 phone I think to myself the Pine phone's going to be great for individuals like yourself and I who love to mess around with this kind of stuff load different firmwares build tools out of them. That's, you know, a, a, it's a real nice market to serve, but it's it's not going to compete with iPhones or LGs or Samsungs. It's never going to compete. That That's done. The, the Pepsi and Coca-Cola of that world has been established. You need ecosystems. You need developers. You need tons of marketing. You need deals with carriers, et cetera, et cetera. But wearables still seems really nascent. You have the Apple Watch, And then you have everything else. And everything else is a bit of a mix. Fitbit seems to be doing pretty strong. Nothing's really grabbed hold of the Android wear market, particularly strong. Uh, but Fitbit seems to be decent. There's a couple of competitors out there, but there's still room to dominate the wearables market, to offer something that's just a damn watch, but also can track your heart rate and your steps and, you know, help you, help you lose a few pounds. That's the value of the Apple Watch. That's why even when I'm carrying my Pixel 3, I still have my Apple Watch on my wrist.
1: Well, I don't think they're aiming for mass market adoption with this. And having spoken to Lucas from Pine64 about it, it's pretty much ready to go, just needs the software for it. The factory is ready to spin up and you know make them, but they just need the software. And that software is going to take a long time to come. And so you know we're talking about next year, definitely, um, before this is a, a reality.
0: Could you imagine a watch where the community um, could create different apps for health? I follow the sleep apnea community and their adventures in hacking their CPAP machines. I wonder, like, could somebody make a sleep app for a watch designed specifically for those of us that have sleep apnea? There's all kinds of possibilities. If we could just open the doors a little bit, it doesn't need to sell tens of millions. And also, Joe, what a statement does it make about how approachable this level of hardware is getting? Like, it's not going to be some performance monster. But a watch that can run an operating system with wireless chips in it and heart tracking that can be sold for less than hundreds of dollars, it's just kind of a remarkable statement about where hardware is at right now.
1: It is, yeah. All I want is notifications on my wrist and security, something that's going to get patches and when the next blue born or whatever it is comes along, it gets patched against that.
0: Oh, man notifications on the wrist are the worst. That's that's like the worst thing. That's that's what I hate the most about my watch. I I actually spend a fair amount of effort making sure that only a certain kind of notifications get through my watch because it's, it's a different level of intimacy. They are vibrating something on your body that's attached to your arm. And so when somebody's like sending you a stream of consciousness that's 15 messages long, that's 15 times that your arm will buzz. It's drives me nuts. So I really, that's the one thing I hate about these watches is the notifications.
1: Oh, <laughs> well, sorry. I better stop doing that then, sending you my <laughs> streams of consciousness.
0: <laughs> actually, you're pretty good at it. you I was just thinking this earlier today. I'm not kidding. I was thinking before the show, you and I were having a chat and you put everything in one message and I was actually doing it to you. In fact, I even did a correction as a separate message instead of doing an edit, which I apologize. Yeah,
1: I try and edit the message. Like if someone hasn't read it, then I'll try and edit in all the extra stuff as I think about it rather than sending a bunch of extra messages. That's kind of a polite
0: thing to do, I think. It's the decent thing to do. I try to do it too, but I was on a roll, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of rolling, this show rolls right on. <laughs> Linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes every single week and linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. Hey, we've got two big announcements. I'm very excited to say that Self-Hosted has launched, selfhosted.show. Go check that out. Episode one is out now. And Linux Headlines, brand new show from Jupiter Broadcasting every single weekday, just the news you need to know about in three minutes or less, linuxheadlines.show. And being under three
1: minutes means that it is just the headlines and the need to know details.
0: Our first week is out. We're just getting started, and it also makes for a great flash briefing on the Echo. Very proud of the team for launching that. Go check it out. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I am at Chris LAS. And I'm at Joe Ressenton. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.